I'm going to share my story for a little while. Thank you. A... Um, when I got the email yesterday that I was going to be preaching today, uh, that would normally bring some anxiety with it. But uh, actually, I felt I, my first thought was that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I'll share why. But for my time, I'm just going to do this in kind of three movements. First, I want to set the frame of how I'm going to talk about anxiety today. Uh, as somebody who has struggled, like I resonated with your story just now. I, I was probably seven or eight when the big bad wolf of anxiety showed up for me, and I first started really struggling with anxiety. Uh, and then I went through disorientation in my early 20s, and everything fell apart. And uh, I'm still in the process of reorientation 20 years, ago, 20 years later. Uh, so I'm going to set the frame. I'm going to talk about my very recent struggle with anxiety, tell a story, and then just share some strategy around anxiety, strategy that the enemy tends to use, your enemy tends to use when it comes to anxiety, and then strategies that I have found to be helpful. Uh, so to set the frame, anxiety and depression are twins. They're often referred to as twins. And uh, they are multifaceted and very complex. And actually, Scripture honors their complexity. Scripture does not reduce them to a simple formula, a simple prayer that you pray to get out of your anxiety or to get out of your depression. You will not find three easy steps to end depression or anxiety in here. Believe me, I've looked. You won't find it. Scripture honors their complexity in a way that nothing else in all of our culture really does. So there are aspects, components of anxiety. First, uh, there is a physical component to anxiety and depression, a real physical component. Uh, diet, something as simple as diet or a lack of exercise can affect it and impact it and bring it on. But also, hormonal imbalance can bring it on. And if, for example, your body is not producing thyroid hormone, it can make you want to kill yourself. That's a physical problem. And in the physical space, we have psychiatrists and doctors that can help us with some of those physical things. And medication can be a form of help when you're dealing with the physical aspects of anxiety or depression. And here at Providence, we don't frown on doctors or medication. And so this morning, if you are receiving help from medication for your depression or your anxiety, you're not a second-class Christian or somebody who just needs more faith and then you can get off of it, that's okay. It is okay. It's actually a gift that we live in an age where we have figured out some things where medicine can help. And I personally have looked into medication at times for my anxiety. Physical dimension to anxiety. There is also an emotional relational dimension to anxiety where loneliness can affect you and drive you into either depression or anxiety, being the feeling of being alone. And you're in a society and a culture that is all about individualism and will tell you every day that this is all up to you and you're on your own. And if you want to go out there and succeed, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go do it just like everybody else does. And that can kill you. Uh, emotional stress can bring about anxiety and depression, uh, all of these things. So there's an emotional, relational component. And for that, there is therapy. There is help for you. 
in that dimension that, that is very helpful, very well qualified, and we at Providence believe in counselors and love counselors, love Angela. And if you need therapy, we will lead you to some good therapy. I have two therapists in my life. <laughs> I need it. I need it. And so there's an emotional, relational component to anxiety. There's also an existential angst component to depression and anxiety. Proverbs actually talks about this, that fear that's underneath all of the joy and happiness for you. And it's true for all of us. There's a fear and there's a sadness underneath all of it. What is that sadness? That at some point in your life, you're going to lose everything you have and everyone you love. And you might as well know that that's true and start learning how to deal with that fear and sadness as opposed to just distracting yourself from it. There is no Netflix show that's good enough to fully distract you from that reality. At some point, you're going to die. Everybody in this room is going to die. And that you can fixate on that reality and be driven into deep anxiety and depression. So there is an existential component to it. There is also a moral component to anxiety and depression. And we in the church are really good about talking about morality, but we're not really great at living out morality. And we can identify this for you if you'd like. (laughs) Happy to. Just don't ask us to identify it in ourselves. But sin, treating somebody wrong, doing the wrong thing, if you don't like the word sin, doing what you know is wrong, living contrary to the way that you know you should be living, can drive you into anxiety and depression. And then lastly, there's a spiritual component to anxiety. There's a spiritual component to anxiety. And as a pastor, uh, you might expect me to just fixate on the spiritual component. I would expect me to do that because that's often where I have had pastors try to help me with my own anxiety. With good hearts, good intentions, they've fixated on on the spiritual component and it has not helped me because it's been any number of these other things that I've actually been struggling with. If your parents are getting divorced, being told to read your Bible isn't going to help. So I'm not coming here today as a doctor. I'm not one. And I'm not coming to you today as a licensed counselor. I have not gone to Denver Seminary, like a number of you actually in the room, for counsel. Yes, back here. I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm actually coming to you today as a pastor, but not as a pastor who stands above you. That's why I'm sitting, even though I'm literally sitting above you. (laughs) Not coming to you as a pastor who has this all figured out and has a quick solution to a problem that you've been struggling with since you were seven or eight. I think that'd be an injustice. And if you go into any bookstore, you will find people doing injustice to this topic because you will find authors reducing this to one of those categories. This is a health thing, so change your diet. This is a emotional thing, so feel better about yourself, right? You'll find books, but they will reduce it to one thing, and I'm not going to do that today. And I'm not going to sit above you and tell you that I've got it figured out or that I've got it arrived. I'm sitting with you in it, okay? I'm here I'm as scared of the wolves as any sheep in this room because the beauty of the church is the shepherds are also sheep, and I'm scared of wolves. I really am. I'm an Enneagram 6, and if you don't believe in the Enneagram, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, 
But I'm a, I'm a six, and so I live my life, I wake up in fear. <laughs> my first thought on my best day is, I don't know if I'm going to make it. That's what I wake up with, and I've learned how to combat that. But that's my mindset. When my mind is in neutral, I'm in fear all the time. And so anxiety, I'm prone, I'm prone to anxiety, and I can tell you, I can talk to you about the struggle. I can tell you that anxiety has a taste. Like, it has a taste. And if you've struggled with anxiety or depression, you know that's true. Like, your mouth tastes like you've just eaten a box of sidewalk chalk. There's a taste to it. Like, there's a physical feeling where your stomach feels like it's going to eat its way out of your body and make a mess of your shirt. And since you're in anxiety and you're convinced that you're going to lose your job, you can't afford a new shirt. So you're going to walk around with this mess and so then, in the middle of the night, you go to, like, WebMD for symptoms to try to, like, are there home remedies for stomachs? And after a few hours, the realization, reality sets in on me that I'm going to die of cervical cancer. <laughs> and on my best day, on my best day, I'm 98% sure that I don't have a cervix. But at 4 o'clock in the morning, it's WebMD. MD is in the name. It went to medical school. I went to youth pastor school. I'm not going to argue with science. So then if I'm going to die of this, I should probably check on my life insurance policy because it has likely expired because I think it only lasts for 10 years. And I think it was about 10 years ago that I got it. And if I die, my family's going to get nothing and if my life insurance policy has expired, and I have this pre-existing condition, they're not going to give me life insurance. So I have to turn to crime. And I'm not good at crime. <laughs> the only crime I've ever committed was in junior high when I vandalized a neighbor's house at night because we were doing a sleepover, and we were bored, and we went out and vandalized a neighbor's house. And the next morning, I was so convicted about it, I went and offered to just clean it up for free. <laughs> I'm not good at crime. So I'm in trouble, and my family's in trouble, and there's nothing that I can do. Have you been there? Okay. So I'm not the only one. So I'm sitting with you in this. I know this pattern. I know how this works. I know what it feels like to wake up at 3 in the morning and be terrified and think, I just got to get back to sleep. Just don't think, and it's over. It's over. So I'm going to tell you my story. This is recent for me. This is recent. This is a week and a half recent for me. This was two Thursdays ago. I woke up at 2.30 in the morning, two Thursdays ago. And I heard this message as though one of you was sitting in our room saying it to me. And the message was, you effed up. That was a message. It didn't come from within. Like, this was, I heard this. I heard this in my bed as I woke up. And my first thought, I looked over at the clock, and it was 2.30, and I thought, don't be awake with this at 3 o'clock. Just go back to sleep. Just go back to sleep. And the next second, I looked over at the clock, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, it's done. And I started thinking about all the ways that this was true for me. Like, how, how have I messed up so bad? And it, I don't have to go far to tell you all the ways that I've messed up so bad. And by 3.30, I was pretty sure that we were going to lose our house. That's how quick that's how quick it moved. 
and I just laid awake as the what ifs and the not only that's started happening to me. And not only that, but this is going to happen. And not only that, then this is going to happen. And by 6 o'clock in the morning, I was a mess. And I knew I was stuck. I was stuck in anxiety. I'm not, if you've been there, you don't just step out of that, right? You don't just step out. And I didn't want anybody to know for a lot of reasons. I was embarrassed to be stuck here again because I thought that I'd had victory over this area of my life. So I didn't want to tell my wife. Didn't want to tell my friends. Uh, so I hinted to my wife. I sent her a text at 6.30 in the morning and said, hey, do you have any meetings right away or would you like to go get coffee? <laughs> and she said, I have a meeting, but I'm free at this time. And I was like, okay. And I just let that let it go. I'm not going to say anything. By about midday, I'm telling her, I, I was awake all night. Uh, and I actually shared the, I saved the text thread this morning just to remember. I texted her by noon. I was a mess. I was walking around my house, just a mess, thinking about everything that's going to go wrong for me and for us. And so I texted and said, I'm going to do a Zoom call with Bob, that's my therapist, at 1.30. And she texts me back, what are you talking to Bob about? <laughs> I said, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I'm really, really struggling. And she said the perfect thing. She said, you're fine, and I love you. And I say, yeah, aw. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. I know how this affects you. And she said, I'm good, and I love you. Uh, part of the weight of anxiety is the knowledge of how it affects everybody else right? And depression. You ever try to tell yourself not to be depressed because you don't want to be a drag to all your friends? How does that work? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So I was anxious and I was a mess. I got on the phone. It was a Zoom call with Bob and Bob's great. And uh, Bob just asked me how I was doing and I looked like a skeleton. <laughs> so he could tell I wasn't doing great. And I just, I started to tell him I, I've, I'm anxious, Bob. And here's, here's what happened to me today. Uh, and he said, that's okay. It's okay. We're going to get through this. It's okay. And he said, I want you to remember some of the things that we work on. Because I'm in the, in the Enneagram. I'm in the triad of fear. That's my go-to. But I'm also, I'm in my head a lot. I'm in my head all the time. And my head is very logical, and logic can be very convincing. Even bad logic can be very convincing. And so in other areas of my life, Bob has helped me to unwind my thoughts and get out of my head a little bit. And he's helped me with some good exercises on how to do that. So he said, but Josh, I just want to remind you of a conversation we've had about when your thoughts carry you away. And he's, he started talking to me about contemplative prayer and how it's helpful to just sit. Imagine that you're sitting on the bank of a river and your thoughts are like boats that are just going by. And they're asking you to get on them, and you don't have to get on them. They're going out to sea. And it's good for you to be able to just sit there and acknowledge the thought, because if you pretend like the thought doesn't exist, it's just going to grow and grow and then explode. So it's good to acknowledge the thought. There's a thought about my son getting in the wrong car and ending up in trouble. It's a thought. I can let that go by. There's a thought. My daughter's going to marry a vegetarian. And I'm going to have to learn how to cook a plant-based turkey if I ever want to spend Thanksgiving with her. And I can just let that go by. I can just let... For her 13th birthday, she asked for Wagyu steak. For Christmas, she asked for cheesecake, a waffle iron, and two cans of Ready Whip that she could spray directly into her mouth. 
So I think she's like, that's discipleship. I think she's good. We're good. I can let that thought go by. I can let it go by. But then here comes a boat. Here comes a boat about my business failing. And somehow I get on it and I get carried out to sea, out to open water. So Bob's reminding me of this. And he says, Josh, what happened this morning at 2.30 is a boat came by about you losing your house and losing your job. And you got on the boat. And now you're out in the open ocean and it's stormy. And it makes sense that you're afraid. Anybody except pirates would be afraid <laughs> if they're out in the open ocean on a boat they're not supposed to be on. It makes sense. It's okay. No judgment, no condemnation, help, real help for me in that moment. And my mind immediately went back to February when we did our silent retreat. We did a silent retreat for our pastoral team and our CG leaders. And I'm an introvert. I love silent retreats. Emmanuel couldn't make it, and he was so glad he couldn't make it because he said, that sounds like death to me. <laughs> Sorry to rat you out. Uh, but we had this silent retreat planned, and we were going to go to this beautiful ranch up in the mountains. It's called Revelation Ranch, gorgeous place. But we got so many RSVPs that we exceeded the capacity of the ranch, so we had to move it to the YMCA of the Rockies. So we moved locations to the YMCA of the Rockies, and it's planned, it's on the calendar. I show up, I'm leading the silent retreat, and I get there like two hours late. So I walk into this place of silence and solitude with stress. Uh, not in a good frame of mind to talk to people about how good it is to spend silence with God. I'm, I'm stressed. I'm wondering how everybody's feeling knowing that I'm late to this thing. I get there. What we didn't realize was that on the same weekend, approximately... One million teenagers descended on the Y of the Rockies for various youth rallies. So nowhere was there silence and solitude at this place for this entire... This was like the one weekend where silence and solitude did not exist. So I'm in my room, and uh, somebody's got chihuahuas <laughs> in the room next door. And because teenagers don't honor, like, quiet hours, there's teenagers running up and down the halls all night. And every time they would pass, the chihuahuas took on the responsibility <laughs> of notifying everybody that there's loud teenagers in the hallway. That's all night long. The chihuahuas are losing their minds in this place. This is our silent retreat. <laughs> At 8 a.m., I get a knock on my door, and one of our team members <laughs> says to me, and he looks like I looked when I was talking to Bob, and he says... I got to go. This is not quiet. This is not peaceful. I need to go. And I was like, can I go? <laughs> Would they even notice if I just left? There's so many people here. And I just sat in my room. I was like, what am I doing? This is not working. I'm, I am failing. I have led these people to failure. They're supposed to meet with God in silence and solitude. And we're in noise and chaos and teenagers and chihuahuas. It's not going to happen. So I get alone, as alone as I can be, which meant I go out into the lobby, sit next to a fireplace that's not working, and there's teenagers coming in and out the entire time, and I'm just like, God, I need to find you. I need to find you in this place. And a story came to my mind of Jesus trying to find silence and solitude, and I didn't know where it was, and so I spent some time looking for it, and it's actually our text today. It's in Matthew 14, and I'm just going to tell you the story of Matthew 14 really briefly here. This is not going to be a classic sermon. Uh, but in our 
Light and Heat Group, which is a group that we meet as a leadership team on Thursday mornings. We're actually working through sermon prep, and we're going to look at this text on how to create a sermon out of this text this Thursday morning, for those of you that are coming to that. Uh, but we're just, I'm just going to take a narrative approach to this narrative story, okay? In Matthew 14, to set the context of Matthew 14, John the Baptist has just been beheaded, executed. John the Baptist is the number two most popular teacher in all of Palestine at this time. He's got hundreds, if not thousands, of disciples and followers that gather around him to listen to him teach. And we hear about Jesus as being a very popular teacher. John the Baptist was right behind him, very popular. People were going out into the wilderness to hear him speak. And now the government has taken him prisoner and beheaded him. John the Baptist happens to be Jesus' friend and cousin. Cousin. He's family. This is his family member. And John, four, or yeah, John 14 tells us that his disciples came to Jesus and told him what happened. Just let yourself sit in that space for a minute. You're the number one most popular teacher or the number one most threatening teacher to Rome. And they just killed the number two guy. And this happens to be your friend and your family member. And you're getting this news in the middle of your ministry. He's healing people. He's doing miracles. He's doing all this stuff. He's here to save the world. And he gets this news. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Doesn't that make sense? Can't you resonate with the emotion of that moment? where you get that news and you just need to be by yourself. You don't need to lead anybody anymore. You don't need to think about work anymore. You just need to get alone and be away. For Jesus, we know this, with the Father, right? I need to get alone. I just need to be with my Father and mourn and grieve. Verse 14, or no, still the same verse, same, same exact verse, which means this is the same moment that this is happening. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He's looking, desperately looking for silence and solitude, and he finds a crowd waiting for him. And I begin to get convicted at this silent retreat, like, okay... I, I was going for silence and solitude, and there's a crowd here, and I'm mad about it. I didn't have compassion. I wanted to euthanize some chihuahuas. <laughs> I did not have compassion in my heart for people at this moment. Jesus doesn't get out of the boat and say, go home. I just, I just need a minute. Just go home. He doesn't do that. He gets out of the boat, and he has compassion on them. And this is the place where he goes on to feed 5,000 men plus their women and children. And I had never realized the context of that miracle before this silent retreat. I never realized that it was on his pursuit for silence and solitude that Jesus finds a need, has compassion, and miraculously feeds thousands of people. It's amazing. I wouldn't have the emotional energy or the spiritual authority and power I would have the emotional energy to have compassion on a crowd in that moment. The funny thing is the disciples 
are just business as usual. They see that the crowd is here, and they say the most obvious statement in this entire story. They say, verse 15, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. Jesus is like, You think? (laughs) I created this place for this moment so I could find some silence and solitude in this desolate place, and you're here. You're here. You're in my desolate place. He doesn't react that way. That's how I would react. He feeds the crowds. He actually tells his disciples to feed the crowds. Don't worry. Just feed them. And they go to numbers, seven. So we have five loaves and two fish, 5,000. We, we can't do it. And Jesus says, bring me your food, and I'll feed them. And he feeds them. Back onto his quest for silence and solitude, verse 22, immediately after he dismissed the crowds, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. At last, at last he finds his silence and solitude. He's on the mountain praying by himself. When evening came, he was there alone. And initially, as I read that, I was like, oh, that sounds kind of lonely. But in this place, I'm like, oh, he found it. Good. He's got his alone time with God. He can unpack his grief, maybe some fear, maybe some anger at the authorities who just beheaded his friend for sport. Those authorities who, by the way, he's holding together by the word of his power in that moment. Maybe he's a little (laughs) angry. When evening came, he was there alone, and verse 24, but the boat. Those three words jarred me in that moment. But the boat, but the boat, but the boat was a long way off. The boat by this time was a long way from land. In other gospels, it tells the story, and we know that the boat was about three miles away in the middle of the night at this time, and Jesus is aware of it. Even in his silence and solitude, he can't get away from compassion but the boat was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And this is the place where Jesus invites Peter out of the boat to join him walking on the sea. And Peter goes out there and begins to sink, and Jesus rescues him. And he says, don't be afraid. It is I, as it's translated in the ESV, which is actually, I am. Don't be afraid. I am. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know what I am is. I am is what God identified himself as to Moses in the burning bush. You have nothing to be afraid about. I am. Remember? In Mark's account of this same story, it says, and he meant to pass by them. Which brings us back to the place in Exodus where the glory of God passed by Moses because Moses couldn't handle God himself And so it says that he passed by him. And so Jesus is using this moment to show his disciples who he is and why they don't need to be afraid. He left his silence and solitude. He left his time with his father to go rescue his scared followers. And so I'm thinking in that place, this is a leadership text for me. I need to have compassion on people, even in the midst of a noisy environment. I need to love people. And it was actually very profound and moving for me in that space back in February. But fast forward to two Thursdays ago. Bob says to me, you're in a boat. And 
you're on open water. And I just immediately started sobbing. I was just crying. And Bob's good at letting me feel emotions because I'm not very good at that. So he let me just cry. And after a minute or longer, he said, Josh, can you tell me what's going on for you? And I said, Jesus has compassion for scared people in boats. And the words that came to me as soon as he said that were, but the boat, but the boat. Three very different words than what I woke up with that morning. For me, when I know that I'm in anxiety, I know that I'm in for on the short side a week of just misery. I'm not going to want to eat for a week. Like, this is going to last. We're going to be here a while. In that space, the anxiety broke for me. It was as if Jesus got in the boat and calmed the sea just immediately. I've never experienced it. I, I've never experienced it. Uh, but he came out. He came out to me. I don't know what I interrupted. <laughs> Matt, Matt Champlin came over to my house last night, and I was just kind of sharing him my thoughts and where I was going with this. I said, I have no idea what I interrupted. What was Jesus up to? And Matt says, probably time with his father. <laughs> and that's probably true. And he left it, and he met me in my boat. And he said, hey, take courage, Josh. Take courage. This is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. The anxiety left me. It left me. I was, I was set free from it in a way that I haven't, I haven't before. And so I'm not sharing this story with you to just tell you some simple steps to take or to tell you that I can wave a magic wand over you and your anxiety and your depression will leave. I can just tell you that Jesus delivered me from it. So I want to wrap up with just a brief, I want to briefly look at some of the strategies that were at play here and we'll be done, okay? Briefly. What strategies were at play? First, I want to talk, just talk about the strategies that your enemy uses to keep you in anxiety and depression, okay? You have an enemy. We believe this. I believe this as a pastor. We believe this as Christians. His name is Satan, and he is against you. He wants more than anything for you to abandon your faith, to believe that God is not good and neither are you, and that you can handle life on your own. That's what he wants for you. So he wants to separate you from God and leave you in your isolation and despair. You have an enemy, and he's coming for you. So his first strategy is one of condemnation. He's going to come to you, and he's going to condemn you. His name, Satan, literally means the accuser. So he's going to come to you with accusations at 2.30 in the morning or at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He's going to come to you. And he's going to tell you something that you did that you don't think anybody knows about. You pray to God nobody knows about, but he knows about it, and he's going to tell you about it. And your first thought is going to be, I have no hope because I have severed myself from my father with this thing that I did. He's going to weaponize your sin, and he's going to weaponize your fear against you to make you think that you've been cut off from God. And he's very good and compelling at doing this. So he's going to use condemnation against you. Then he's going to use isolation against you. He wants to get you alone. This is why Peter says he's like a roaring lion. How do lions hunt? They look for the weakest. 
They look for the one that they can isolate, and they get them alone, and he wants you to be alone. Katie told, it took me a long time to actually tell my own wife that I was struggling with anxiety because my enemy was so convincing that I needed to keep this to myself. But then she said, you should call your friends. Call Jay, call Juan. I was like, I can't. They're going to judge me for this. I'm embarrassed, and they're going to judge me. I know better. It's irrational, but it was real, and it was real enough to keep me in isolation. He wants you to be by yourself, isolation. And then lastly, he's going to use lies. He's going to lie to you about your circumstances. He's going to lie to you about your identity. He's going to lie to you about how your Father in Heaven feels about you. He's going to lie to you about this. He's going to lie to you about everything. And the lies are going to be very convincing. Jesus called him the Father of lies. He's been lying for a long time, and he's good at it. He's good at it. So that's what he's going to do. That's how he's going to come to you. Scripture tells us all three of these things that he uses. Condemnation, isolation, and lies. But you have strategies, too, as a Christian. You have strategies. And Angela alluded to it. She said, there's no magic steps to this. I rooted and grounded myself in the word of God. I did that for 30 years. And then when anxiety shows up, I know where to go. And that was true for me in this latest episode. It was true for me. It's all I did. And I didn't do it very well. I'm not good at Bible reading. I'm not good at consistency, but I did it. So as you're reading this, your strategies are to respond to Satan and his condemnation with the truth that Jesus tells us. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from condemnation, and now nothing can separate you from the love of God. We sang about it this morning. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan came at him in this way, and Jesus responded to him with Scripture and said, Satan, no, this, this is what this says. So there is no condemnation for you. Psalm 130 says, Oh, Lord, if you, were to, if you were to number our sins, oh, Lord, who could stand? The accusations and condemnation that he's bringing against you, the things that he knows about that you pray to God nobody else knows about, God also knows about and has already forgiven you by the blood of his Son for those things. They cannot separate you from his love, and he will never condemn you. That's why it's called, by the way, in Hebrews, the throne of grace. You can approach God's throne in confidence because it's the throne of grace, not judgment. And you're coming in confidence, not self-righteousness, confidence that Jesus bought your forgiveness and you will never face condemnation. And now you have an advocate in heaven. 1 John 2. When, not if, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. You have an advocate. That's a strategy. This is a strategy. This is how you answer your accuser. What about isolation? You have a strategy. The kingdom has resources. You have a family here. And in this family, we know doctors. We know therapists. We know other believers who struggle. You have pastors who struggle with what you're struggling with. There's no sin you could have committed that's any worse than the sins that I've committed. You will never find judgment from us when you come. So don't listen to the accuser when he says, you can't go to them, they'll judge you. This place won't judge you. We would never judge you. We're here to help you. And God gave you this family for that reason. So don't let your accuser keep you in isolation. 
And then what do you do with his lies? You just, you just tell him the truth. You just tell him the truth. Satan will say to you, yeah, you got in a boat and there's no coming back. And the truth is, Jesus has a lot of compassion for scared people on boats. And he's coming. He's coming. It was the fourth watch of the night, the text tells us. You know what that was? 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. His disciples are terrified on a boat. He stops what he's doing, and he walks over raging seas for three miles to get to them. That's the truth. And the beauty of the story is it's not just a metaphor. I'm not just here telling you to metaphorically think about boats, though it is a metaphor. It's not just a metaphor. It's reality. It is the most real thing in the universe that Jesus identifies with you in your struggle and in your suffering, and he suffers alongside you. It's real. And Peter found out that it was real later when he would deny Christ and again found himself sinking. And Jesus went out and found him and said, Peter, I know that you love me. Feed my sheep. Jesus will come to you. That's the truth. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the truth. So I don't know. I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. We're going to sing, and the prayer team is here. I will be down here to pray with you. If you're going through anxiety, I'll just pray with you, or depression. But I don't know if maybe 80% of the room is listening to this and thinking, I don't struggle with anxiety. That's okay. I'm, I'm married to Katie, who is a one on the Enneagram, and she doesn't deal with anxiety. She doesn't lay awake at 3 in the morning with anxiety. She has her own struggles. If you're in that triad, your neutral mode of your mind is anger, right? So anger, I don't know if you're here and you're saying, you know what, I don't struggle with fear, but I struggle with anger. Jesus knows about your anger and he knows what it is to be angry and he will meet you in your anger and take your anger on for you. In fact, he'll be angrier about what was done to you than you could ever be. And his anger is perfect. There's no sin in it. So you can have confidence in turning your anger over to him. But maybe it's not anger. Maybe you're in the sadness triad. Maybe when you're in neutral, your mind goes to sadness and you feel sorrow. You know who Jesus was identified as? A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like to just be in sorrow all the time and feel like you can't shake it and feel like you have to distract yourself from it when that existential angst starts to bubble up in you and it's overwhelming and sad and your friends have died or your family has died, Jesus meets you in that space. And he doesn't condemn you. He doesn't sing a happy song to you and say, cheer up. There are no bluebirds on your shoulder. He weeps with you. He weeps his lungs out with you in that space. So I don't know what boat you're on. I don't know what your struggle is this morning, but all I can tell you is Jesus has a lot of compassion for the boats. And he's coming. He's coming for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace over us and your power over us. Thank you for delivering us from the evil one. 
Father, I pray you continue to, live, to deliver us. If there are people in chains here this morning, God, of anxiety or depression or anger or anything else, God, I pray this morning you would break those chains. Your son came to set the captives free, and I pray this morning he would break their chains and set them free, Father. I pray they may not know how to do it. They may not know how to put the strategies in place, but I pray they'd know how to just take one step, just one step and talk to somebody about it. We love you, Father. Thank you for your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.